Our Bible reading is taken from 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6, and this can be found in a church Bible, page 1160. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we've declared our intention, our desire to be holy, and we pray, Father, that we would be those who reflect your holiness in listening to your word and putting it into practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a bit of a confession, which is that I struggle to share God's Word. As much as I know His Word is important, as much as I know I should be doing it, it doesn't come very naturally. I'm fearful of what people might think of me. I don't like the feeling of being rejected, and if I'm honest, it just doesn't feel that powerful as I do so. But before you drag me from the pulpit as a terrible example, uh, let me remind you that actually that is the Apostle Paul's experience as well. See, he knew that word ministry declaring this word was a hard task. Look at how he feels about his work in chapter 7, verse 5. He says this, For when we came to Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. See, it wasn't a walk in the park. And look at how he felt um, in himself in chapter 11, verse 27. Chapter 11, verse 27 over the page. He says this, I have labored and told have often gone without sleep, I've known hunger and thirst, and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. I mean, as word ministry goes, that's, yeah, pretty tough, isn't it? See, Paul knew that sharing the word was a struggle. But yet, he does it. Despite feeling this way, he spends his whole life 
committed to making that word known. And the question is why? Why put himself through this hardship? Why cause himself this sort of anxiety? Why go to these lengths to spend his life declaring this word? Well, the answer is what we see here in chapter 4. Because of what we see about this word in chapter 4. See, these verses in chapter 4 are a bit like a defibrillator put on the heart of the Corinthian church. Because the Corinthian church wanted to grow and be very powerful. But the way they went about it was looking to what seemed impressive, what seemed powerful in the world, and bringing that into the church. And for them, Paul felt like a bit of an embarrassing relative because his method of ministry was very simple. It was to go around declaring this word. And to them, it just seemed so weak. It caused so many issues. It got you into hot water. And so the question is, why would we follow Paul? Well, Paul here in chapter 4 shows us that actually... The reason he does this is because this is where true power lies, true impressiveness lies. And he shows us that in what the word is, what the word does, and what the word, how the word comes. See, why, first of all then, why word ministry, Paul? Well, because of what the word is. Now, I'm going to do something slightly unconventional. I'm going to work backwards through this passage because it's right at the end that we see Paul's reason for his method. And notice first what his method is in verse 5. He says this, for we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. See, that that phrase, Jesus Christ as Lord, is a catch-all for the whole gospel. It describes Jesus' coming in the flesh. It describes his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, his return, and his supremacy over the whole of creation. See, Paul's ministry is summed up in those four words. Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's it. Paul doesn't go with the glitzy presentation. He doesn't come with a kind of business world mission strategy. He comes with a word. Jesus Christ is Lord. But why this way? Why not the glitzy? Why not the impressive, Paul? Well, you see the reason in verse 6. He says this, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See, notice what he says about this word. It's not just any old word, is it? See, here he goes back to Genesis, those very first seconds of creation where God spoke. And you'll remember, remember back in January, a long time ago now I know, but remember back in January that God spoke. He said, let there be light, and there was light. God's words were so powerful that as he spoke, things happened. Photons that are around us were brought into the existence by the sound of his voice. And notice in 2 Corinthians uh, where this word pops up again. In verse 6, B, he says, uh, second half of verse 6, he says this, he has made his light shine in our hearts 
And so God's word now is not bringing light into the cosmos, that's already here, but he's bringing light into the human heart. And Paul, of course, knew this very personally, didn't he? Uh, If you know much about Paul, you'll know that his big moment came when he was on the road to Damascus, where he was uh, seeking to arrest people in the early church. Paul describes himself as a blasphemer, a violent man, a persecutor. I mean, if anyone was, had the lights off in their heart, well, it was the Apostle Paul. But then his journey was interrupted by an unquenchable light. The light was so strong, in fact, that he lost his physical sight. But in God's irony, he, it was the first time he actually had spiritual sight. And now, he says, that same process takes place as that word is declared, not bringing light to the cosmos, but bringing light to people's hearts. And so as Paul speaks God's words, he's not just bringing some opinion of his own, not just some very wise word, but he's speaking a life-creating word. The same God who spoke so that the light came to the cosmos, is the same God who now speaks in the word of the gospel. So that as Jesus is proclaimed, light comes into people's hearts and they're transformed. I mean, once you get that, there's no other way, really, I could stop there, couldn't I? Because there's no other way you'd really want to do ministry. If you understand that this word is that same word that has power to bring light to the cosmos... Well then, actually, it makes complete sense that we share God's word with those around us. I wonder if I'm ringing a bit on the microphone. I wonder if I could just, I don't know, change my voice or something. That would be great. (laughs) But just to remind us again, as we share this word, actually that word is the same word that we heard at the beginning of creation. And just as the action follows the word, well, so it is that as God's word's heard well, then people uh, receive life. You know, I remember this myself. When I became a Christian, it wasn't the kind of fanciness of the presentation. It wasn't the kind of wisdom of my friends that persuaded me. It was a friend who said to me, Rob, why don't you read Luke's gospel? And it was another friend who, on the phone, I remember very vividly, describing to me what Jesus did by dying for me. It was that that changed me. And Ever since then, I've seen this sort of ministry work in the long time, uh, in the long term. It's not the flashy, it's not the most impressive, it's where the word has been taught. But as I confessed at the beginning, it's not that easy, is it? I mean, we know that, but actually the experience doesn't seem that powerful. And the question is why? And Paul also reminds the Corinthian church of what the Word does. Uh, As we move on to our second point, um, I wonder if I could just... It's not just me, is it? There, good. Good. I'm sorry about my voice, but I... (laughs) Is that better? I can... um, Good. So we've heard what the word is, but now we hear what the word does. See, Paul's not naive, is it? He knows that this word ministry is hard, despite what we hear about the word here. 
He knows the word is not universally accepted. He's got the scars to prove it. And that raises the big question, why? I mean, if God's word is so powerful, why does this word ministry look so weak? And the reason he gives comes in verse 3. He says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. See, not everyone sees the gospel for what it is. He says it's veiled, it's hidden behind a screen. Um, You may remember there was this thing that broke the internet several years ago about a dress. Um, I've got a picture of it here. And um, I do, do you remember this? It was crazy, wasn't it? Um, This was a dress uh, put on the internet, and um, it's obviously black and blue, uh, but there were some crazy people out there who thought that actually it was gold and white. Um, Anyone want to fess up to that? Yeah, there's a few nods of the heads. Uh, I don't know what you're looking at, but it's not the same picture as I'm looking at. Now, I'm pretty convinced it's the same dress we're looking at, um, but actually there's a kind of difference in how it's received. I'll turn it off now so we're not (laughs) trying to uh, argue with our neighbours. But there is that sort of effect that the gospel has, Paul says. See, some people look at Jesus and they just don't get it. Perhaps they see a good man, a wise teacher, but as they look at the cross, they just see one death amongst many. Sure, Jesus seems a good guy, but not particularly relevant to my life today. But for others, they look at the cross and they see something completely different. They see life. They don't see defeat, they see victory. They see a man dying in my place to pay for my sins. They see a man rise to life to bring in life to this world. See, it's the same word, isn't it? It's no different, but there's two completely different responses. And this word has that effect. As it goes out, well, it will divide. I'm sorry to say, if you want to share the word and be liked by everyone, well, you won't share the word. Uh, Paul describes this in chapter 2, verse 16. Have a look back over the page, and here's how he describes his ministry. Verse 15, rather. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. Same smell, smells like death to some, Smells like a fragrance of life to others. There's a kind of marmite-ness to the gospel. Some people see life. Some people see death. But this is far more serious than what we put on our toast, of course. But why that division, Paul? I mean, if the word is this powerful, why do we get these two different responses? Well, the cult, something of the, um, that answer comes in verse 4 as we see uh, Paul name the culprit for this division. Verse 4, we read that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, the God of this age is um, Paul's way of describing uh, the one who opposes God's word and his power. And there's kind of echoes here of Eden. Um, we, we, describe, we see Jesus is described as God's image, and there's a couple of other references here uh, that make us think back to Eden. 
Because remember what happened in Eden. Remember what the big battle was. It wasn't a big battle between armies. It was a battle over God's word. That question, did God really say? And here Paul says that actually that same question is coming up again. See, back in Eden, it wasn't a problem with God, was it? He he declared his word openly. He said, eat from any tree in the garden except one. But the serpent said, did God really say? God really is holding you back. You could become like gods if you go against his word. And so they listened to the serpent over the creator. And that same process is happening about Jesus as he's declared. Well, that same serpent is blinding people so they reject this word. They don't see in it the true nature of its power. See, Eden's happening all the time as the gospel goes out. Some hear it, some believe, some reject it. Now, when I first read verse 4, I thought, maybe that's a bit harsh. Maybe, you know, if you're here this morning and you, you wouldn't call yourself a believer, uh, maybe that feels a bit harsh to say about you. But actually, when you think about it, it is helpful, I think, because it helps us to do this ministry with gentleness and patience. Because imagine if we shared this word, but every time someone rejected it, we thought that it was because of us or because of our presentation. We'd either get angry with the people we're sharing it with, or we'd get angry with ourselves. How many times have you sort of walked away from a conversation and just picked it apart and thought, well, it must be me, it must be my problem. Or maybe you point the finger the other way and say it's their problem, their stubbornness, their hardness. But actually, when we see that actually it's part of this bigger process that's been going on since the beginning of time, well, we need not take it so personally. It's why we can love even our enemies, even those who disagree with us most vehemently. It's not personal to us. Personal to God, of course, but it's not to us. And of course, as we read this, we're not reading verses just about someone who's completely alien to us. We're reading verses about our state without God's grace in our lives. All of us were once blinded by the God of this age. All of us have rejected his word. The only reason we've accepted it is because of his mercy. See, this word divides, not because there's a problem with the word. The word is completely powerful. But there's a problem with us and our hearts. So how does this help us with that question? How does this help with Rob's struggle? I know everyone else is probably absolutely fine with this, but for me, I struggle with word ministry. How does this help me? Well, as we close and move on to our third and final point, I want us to see how this mindset spills out into our method. See, Paul describes his method in verse 2. He says this, Rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. See, Paul doesn't use a sales technique. He, he isn't interested in the glittery presentation. There's no sense of smuggling in terms and conditions. He just sets forth the truth plainly. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because once we understand what the gospel is and its true power, 
well, then we would not want to interfere with it at all. I mean, the Mona Lisa I went to see a few years back, and um, I realize it's not everyone's cup of tea, but um, I, met, I watched a kind of YouTube video for about 40 minutes, absolutely captivated by it, on this very painting, just one painting, and going through every detail of it. Um, I'll send the link later if you're interested. So, for example, you know, noticing that the background's a slightly different angle, and it kind of means you lean into the picture. Obviously, the fact that her eyes follow you around, and the intriguing smile, is she smiling when you look at it? Uh, yeah, etc., etc. I'm not trying to sell you the painting. But the point being, it is a complete masterpiece, isn't it? It's the most famous painting in the world, completely priceless, kept behind bulletproof glass. And it'd be unthinkable, wouldn't it, for me, with my GCSE in art, B grade, I think, to come along and think, I can improve that. Actually, the, the background's not quite straight. I'm going to level it out. And so it is with the gospel. It doesn't need our improvements. It doesn't need our leveling out. Our job is to present it in all its glory. The word will divide. We don't need to pretend it won't. We don't need to make it more palatable to kind of smuggle it into people's hearts. We don't need to downplay the tricky bits to kind of sell it to someone. See, our job, like Paul's here, is to proclaim that word faithfully, to set it forth truthfully. I don't know about you, but this is one of those points where it makes me proud to be a Christian because it's so refreshing, isn't it? So refreshing to have this approach, to not feel that we're twisting people's arms. I hope you've never experienced that in church, and I'm sorry if you have. We don't twist people's arms. We don't force people to believe. We set forth the truth plainly. There's something very attractive about this, isn't there, in our world, because we know that so much we listen to or so much we read on the feeds or, or hear, we, we're always got our filter up. We're always thinking, what's the person's agenda here? What are they trying to sell me? What are they trying to do? I remember buying loads of stuff on YouTube because I thought these people were making genuine recommendations to me on YouTube. I didn't realize they were kind of advertising things and getting paid for it. Um, so, sorry if I've broken that to you this morning. But um, you, you get that sense, don't you? Everything comes with an agenda. Everything's being sold. And yet here, actually it's a job, uh, the, 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 uh, the beauty of the gospel is that we set it forth plainly. And I hope as we head into Passion for Life in the next few weeks, this is a real encouragement for us. Yes, we expect it to be tough. It is taking us out of our comfort zone. And yes, not everyone will like the message. But actually, as we understand what God's word is, it is his power. And as we understand what this word does, it does divide. But actually, we can be encouraged, not ashamed, not fearful, because we do have a God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Let's pray. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And so, Father, we pray your forgiveness on us when we've ever taken away from that truth, added to that truth, omitted the truth. Please forgive us and please help us, Father, to understand your word for what it is so that we might declare it as we should. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay, we've got three questions in, Rob. So the first one, um, what is the role of pre-evangelism in unpicking people's thinking before even declaring the gospel to them? Yeah, so um, this, is, this is a great question because it allows me to be a bit more nuanced in what I was saying. Um, what is pre-evangelism? Well, pre-evangelism, as I understand it, is um, not evangelizing, not telling people the gospel, but getting to know them. Um, I'd rather it be called getting to know them, loving people, because it does, the, the downside of it is it might give the impression that we're doing some sort of gospel ministry when we're not. Now, that's okay. Uh, we're to love our neighbor. We're to do good to all people. I get that. But actually, evangelism is something different. Um, notice in chapter 4 that Paul uh, declares, he proclaims, the word preach is used, uh, Jesus is Lord. So um, evangelism is very much a word ministry, not to discredit uh, loving people and getting to know them. So yeah, absolutely, we should love people. We're not sort of parachuting in to give the gospel. Uh, we need to do that. Um, what's the role of unpicking? I think that's slightly different to pre-evangelism. I think that is gospel ministry. Um, and Paul did this all the time. So I was just looking at Acts chapter 17, that he went into the synagogue and explained that Jesus, uh, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer from the, um, and rise from the dead. And uh, he's persuading people. He's wrestling with things. So this isn't a kind of monologue. Uh, there is a place for that. Uh, but this is a kind of two-way, uh, I imagine they were saying, well, what about this? And he was saying, well, have you looked at this? So, yeah, that work of unpicking is absolutely uh, part of gospel ministry. But I would encourage you to do that with the gospel. So it's not we have to unpick things and then suddenly go, da-da, it's Jesus. But actually we, we, we show why Jesus has to be the answer uh, to all people's things. So, yeah. Hope so, Rob, you were talking about the gospel dividing yeah. um, in terms of people's response. So one of the questions here is probably one we all worry about. What hope is there for people who don't hear this word when there are so many attractive options out there? Well, yeah, I mean, if you're feeling that burden, I, I don't want to take that away from you, really. We do want... Yeah, that's a question I ask myself. It's a question I ask when I do funerals and see the end of life. Um, it's a question when I see suffering. It's a question when I see people very happy. I think... What hope is there? Um, the hope is the gospel, and um, wonderfully, uh, that gospel is powerful and it's been done out in the open. And um, Jesus has ordained his church to share that gospel. So, what hope is there? I think outside of Christ, not a lot, uh, which is why we share Christ and we need to. Okay. So, um, what do you do to overcome those uncomfortable feelings that we all get um, around sharing the gospel? What do I do? Um, I think just to name them. So I've done that quite publicly this morning because um, I think we all sort of look at each other and think, well, oh, they're super evangelists. They just sort of go straight into a situation. And, you know, I remember someone told me about a guy who, um, if anyone asked him for a light on their cigarette, he would say, well, I've got the light of the world. And then suddenly, you know, be having a conversion. <laughs> all the guy wanted was a cigarette. And, uh, yeah. And um, I think there's that sense in which we're all like that. And I think um, just to recognize it's uncomfortable and to see that in the scriptures, that actually it does hurt. You know, it's not, we're not robots, we're not stoics. It, it, does, it does hurt. We want people to believe Jesus, um, and that's not always the case. Uh, what do I do to overcome? I think coming back to what I said about the hope, I remind myself that actually it's the, if I love this person, if, 
if I want the best for them, um, actually helping them to come to know Jesus is the best thing I can do for them. So that doesn't mean strong arming, as I said. It doesn't mean we sort of force it on people. Of course not. We set forth the truth plainly. But yeah, I, I cross that pain barrier and pray. Okay. So yes, cross the pain barrier, but what role does the Holy Spirit play once the word's been shared? Um, thank you very much. Yes, yeah, so um, the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential. So um, uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, if you look back in the context, uh, you'll see um, verse 18, chapter 3. Uh, I mean, it's quite, quite dense verses here. That's why I didn't go there. But um, verse 18, it says, And we with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his likeness, that's Jesus' likeness, whatever increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, Paul, is up, the, the word is declared, uh, but it's not the word irrespective of the Spirit. The Spirit works um, and has to work. And um, remember a couple of weeks ago in Deuteronomy, if, if you want to get that talk, if you've not heard that, that would show you why we need the Spirit. Uh, but actually, both are at work. So it's not that the Spirit does one thing over here, the Word over there. Actually, as we prayerfully proclaim the word, the spirit uses his word uh, to bring life. So um, absolutely essential, which is why which is why we need to be on our knees as well as opening our mouth with okay. this work. There's one final one, which would probably be a quick answer. Jesus is the word in 1 John, and we talk about God's word. So is Jesus God's word, or is the written word in the Bible God's word? Help. <laughs> <laughs> is Jesus God's word? Um, both. So, <laughs> yes. So Jesus is like um, um, yeah, he is yeah, I, I don't, yeah. Both. <laughs> Sorry? Both, I think that's Yeah, fine. yeah, both. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to say more than that. So, but he is um, so Jesus is God, so as we hear Jesus speak, we are hearing God speak. It's not that Jesus has to translate things for us or anything like that. He is God's word. Um, but that word comes to us in the person of Jesus, and but is all heard all over the scripture, uh, but it's still Jesus' word. So, yes, both. Yes. Thank you, Rob. Thank, Thank you. you. I've run out of steam. Thank you. <laughs> Jesus is great. Yeah. <laughs>